Welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I'm delighted to be joined this morning by an icon of mine, Dr. Silvia Federici is the author of one of my favorite books right now, Revolution at Point Zero. And I'm delighted that this book is available because it really represents the decades of struggle that women have been engaged to not only make housework and social reproduction visible as a form of work, but also to be valued. Delighted to have you on our show, Sylvia. Thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you so much to you for inviting me. Now, one of the things that it's on everybody's mind is, you know, we are in pandemic mode, right? We, we've seen the lockdowns worldwide, you know, people are, are scared. There's, we've lost friends, we've lost people we love. And for many people, uh, you know, this has meant not just isolation, but also economic inequality. You know, there's a lot of talk about the essential work. The, we love our essential workers. Who are the essential workers? And how do we visibilize, you know, because in many ways we have been invisibilized. Um, how do we make this work visible and valued? First of all, most of them are women. And uh, I'd say the essential workers are the workers who are most engaged on a day-to-day basis you know, to reproduce people's lives, to ensure that people are alive and they're well and they prosper. And now everybody acknowledges, you know, the key role the nurses, nurses have played. And, you know, so, so correctly we say, you know, nurses are our heroes. At the same time, we also have to see that there are many other essential workers who have not been recognized, which is all the thousand millions of women who, in addition to uh, having jobs outside the home or whether they do not have jobs outside the home, every day they are working, you know, to reproduce their families, send people, make sure that people are able to go to work, the kids going to school, and doing an infinite variety of jobs, you know, from the cleaning, the cooking, the shopping, the budgeting, the emotional work of consoling people. And this has been so much invisible. I think it's become a bit more visible in the pandemic, you know, because of the crisis. You know, the crisis that has been there, has been lived by so many women on a day-to-day basis, has exploded when women have often had to come back into the home since, uh, you know, the children could not go to school or could not go to a daycare center. And there they had often to do telework, take care of the family, take care of the children, and also take care means following them through school and dealing with the trauma, the emotional problems of kids not understanding what is taking place. So I think we need to see that essential work includes a vast number of people, mostly women, not exclusively, 
who you know are really catering to the daily production of life, which also includes dealing with people with chronic diseases, dealing with people who are getting old and are not any longer self-sufficient. I think that often when we speak of uh, reproductive work, maybe we think of child raising, but it's actually much broader than that. All the you know, question of, of aging and, you know, particularly, you know, in the, in the COVID epidemic, you know, we've seen how vulnerable, you know, older people have been. So I hope that we are at the turning point. I hope that the crisis that has been happening in the home, in the family, in the community because of this epidemic is making people more aware, is, you know, consciousness raising about uh, these essential workers as well, you know, uh, because the work of reproducing life in this society has been totally devalued, and those who have been paying the price has been mostly women. And now that crisis is unsustainable. You know, I was reading that more than 168 million children worldwide have, you know, are now being schooled at home. And of course, that work, you're right, falls on the women. I, I think even more alarming is that as this idea of telework, of working from home on your computer has become the so-called new normal for some people. Oh, yes. um, you know, it also has meant the loss of millions of jobs. I think the International Labor Organization recently reported that 24.7 million jobs were lost. And of course, you know, job losses usually disproportionately affect women and migrants. So can we talk a little bit about, you know, this so-called in inevitable crisis that we face because, you know, we have been in an economic downturn since 2008 and then as 2020, you know, met yet another crisis, right, <laughs> of capitalism. Yeah, yes. We are now faced with pandemic and and yet, you know, new levels of punishing uh, inequality. So can we talk about how how has it been possible for capitalism to be so normalized for people to just, you know, accept that this is this is the way we it is. This is, you know, the capitalist system is the way we organize our economic and social uh, lives around. I think that many people understand that this system is fundamentally unjust is fundamentally productive of inequality, including racial inequality, gender inequality. And uh, I think that, unfortunately, so many people have so engaged in a daily struggle for survival that uh, it becomes difficult, you know, to even have the time or to have to be able to devote to the kind of struggle that is really necessary. It's happening but not clearly enough to really make profound change, which is what we need. But you're right. Capitalism has gone from a crisis to crisis to crisis. And these are crises that are completely avoidable. These are crises that could have been absolutely predicted. For instance, the pandemic. You know, this is so obvious that something of this type was going to happen because we have seen, starting in the 1980s, 
that uh, all throughout the world, you know, with the constant expansion of capitalist relations in Africa, Latin America, which means, you know, land being privatized, communal relations being destroyed, austerity program being imposed, government investment in, in uh, services, basic necessity being constantly curtailed. That with that, there's been also an increase of mortality and epidemics. I mean, all through the 80s, I mean, and continuing. Uh, you know, you talk about Africa, meningitis, cholera, Zika, you know, Ebola, and uh, you name it, and the avian flu. So all throughout the world. So it was a matter of time. And on the other hand, all through this period, in the United States, in the so-called affluent countries, you know, there's been a constant, you know, uh, cut in basic services, in basic investment in healthcare, for instance. I'm in New York, and uh, 20 hospitals have been shut down in the last, you know, 21 years because they were not enough profitable. They were not able to fill all the beds all the time. So when, uh, you know, COVID comes, they have to, you know, all of a sudden, major, major crisis, major, major crisis. They have to, you know, use emergency spaces because too many people and they are submerged and the hospitals are overrun. Well, the hospitals are overrun because they've also been systematically shut down. And also investment, you know, investment in uh, essential equipment. From year to year, if you look at the state budget, you will see that the most essential services, those are the most important for our lives, from childcare to services for the elderly and health and healthcare services. These have been the first, you know, to be cut. So this was a crisis that is a political crisis, more than a health crisis. This is a crisis that could have been very well anticipated, and I'll say it's man-made. It's not a crisis that is to do with somehow, you know, the natural world, you know, going, going astray. So, again, it is to be hoped that this is a, a, an alarm bell, is a warning, because this is not the end of it. And uh, I think it's uh, extremely worrisome also that now, you know, everything is the vaccine, the vaccine, the vaccine. There's no discussion, for instance, about not only, you know, therapy. <laughs> for every disease, there has to be some therapy. We haven't heard anything about therapies. But also, I think that what is worrisome is that the environmental and social conditions that have been most important, you know, in the you know, exacerbation of the crisis are not being addressed. I mean, I know in New York, for instance, you know, one of the areas that has been most severely affected is the Bronx because there the air is so polluted. For many, many years, it's been a crisis place. Children have asthma. People are, you know, children at very early age have asthma. You know, so the immunity system of people have been compromised, you know, by 
polluted air, polluted water, food that is not nutritious, pesticides, etc. And of course, social inequalities. You know, social inequalities are fundamental. And so, this is what we really have to confront. You know, the, the, this epidemic is really not an issue only of vaccine and viruses. It's really an issue of social decision. What is being invested in? You know, right now, much investment is going into police, is going into armaments, you know, and or even into space exploration. And, and less and less, it's being invested into the reproduction of our lives. And this has to change. When our hospital decided they need a triage because they have, you know, a mill and they have all this, you know, very dangerous industry that, you know, something happened, they need something, right? So they were they were raising money and someone wrote a big sign and said, wouldn't it be great if the military had to have bake sales to get their funding and we properly ah. found our hospitals? And and I thought that's really brilliant and it, it it's a little tongue-in-cheek, but it really speaks about, you know, the legacy that neoliberalism has had on our lives, right? This idea of privatizing all our, you know, social safety, right. you know, and that, that we're won, by the way, by, by very diligent struggles. In your book, you make very clear that not only alienated labor of women was the ground zero for the imposition, the very violent imposition of capitalism, uh, but it continues to be that way. You know, it continues to be this level of devalorizing our, our work, devalorizing you know, the, the energy and contribution that we bring uh, that enables us, you know, enables us to, to not see how, you know, we not only are we participating in our own oppression, but how, you know, permitting there to be a second class, you know, layer of citizens that work under the table. There are the, you know, the temporary workers that, you know, they're the ones who pick our food. Um, they're the nannies, you know, who leave their own children yeah. to come and look after our children. So I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about the connection, not only of globalizing inequality and how, you know, the costs of that, you know, are are being detrimental to our well-being, our, our, our understanding of who we are, our connection to ourselves, to nature, and to each other. Yeah, you know, what is happening, I mean, that's the problem. Capitalism has uh, been able to, to thrive, to accumulate indecent, obscene amount of wealth, uh, the companies and the individual as well, you know, on the basis of the creation of a whole uh, set of hierarchies and of a whole set of population who barely can survive. The more, in fact, that workers are engaged in, in the accumulation of wealth, the more they are exploited, the more their life has been really reduced to daily misery. And, uh, you know, we see with a lot of working-class women or working with no compensation, if they want to have any money, any autonomy, they have to do two jobs. And also we see, you know, that, that look at the United States. Much of the work of reproduction, you know, is done by the labor of people, you know, whose work has been, uh, you know, exploited with an intensity, 
know, think of the farm work as all immigrants, all basically paid with something from for system to live from hand to mouth. All all the services, in fact, you know, are done majority by migrant work, and uh, most of the time people have no benefits. We have really bills uh, compensation on the level of survival, right? So the creation of this incredible inequality. You know, capitalism uh, has built on a system of slavery. And when slavery was finished, you know, then you had uh, Jim Crow. You had other forms of forced labor. They were more hidden, but they were basically slavery devised. And uh, this is what continuously being repeated, which is the reason why, hand in hand with the exploitation, you also have such incredible system, you know, of repression and control and surveillance. You know, this uh, assassination that we see throughout the community in the United States of black people, of black youth in particular, you know, they are really at the service of maintaining a whole system of brutal exploitation, you know, where, you know, black people in a way, for the majority, are still in some form of slavery or another. And, uh, and it's also, of course, next to it is migrant people. Look at what is happening at the border. What is happening at the border is unconceivable. For many, many, many months at the border, families are being separated. They have no idea. Many families, they don't know where the children are. They have been sent back to Guatemala. They have been sent back, you know. And, and you wonder... How is it possible? What could explain such level of barbarity, such level of cruelty? And then you have to piece it together, and you piece it together with an economic system that is built, is built on the ability to impose enormous system of exploitation, enormous extraction of labor from people. You take everything from them, you take their life, you take their youth. You know, and then you give them back pittance. You give them back just enough to go by every day with a lot of anxiety about the future. We now understand, you know, this system is, has to be changed. It has to be changed. It's too, it's too unjust. The injustice, and no matter how many, you know, reform, you know, the basics still remain there. The basics still remain there. You know, we see in the U.S., Every new administration, you know, guarantees that more money will go to the military, that the military will always be well-funded, the police will always be well-funded. But, you know, very little is actually done to really profoundly change the condition of the millions who are at the bottom. This requires really a very sustained mobilization with a good uh, long-term objective with the vision, really, of the creation of a different society. I'm curious, what inspires you? Because for me, I think, despite all this aggression against Black people, I did see a Black Lives Movement rise up, you know, in 2020, in the middle of a pandemic, you know, 26 million people participated. To me, there's still a lot of energy in our movements. There's still people who dream of a world without capitalism. 
Oh, no, absolutely. You're absolutely right. For instance, look in terms of uh, women's struggle also. Uh, I've been so impressed by what has been taking place in Latin America in places like Chile, Argentina, Uruguay, where over the last two, three years, millions of women have gone to the streets and uh, really also obtaining you know, important change, like in, in Argentina, for instance, you know, despite the very, very strong mobilization by the right wing, they were able to obtain the right for abortion. And more than that, because uh, what has been happening, particularly in the Kono Sur, has been that political spaces have been created where the women coming from different places, campesinas, indigenous, you know, uh, women from the unions, you know, from the solidarity economies, you know, come together and they can begin to formulate a common agenda. And they can begin, you know, despite differences, debate, but nevertheless, they can begin to work together. And there's something really new and very powerful that is taking place. And then you're right, you know, with Black Lives Matter. And in the movement, we're also seeing, you know, in the last months, much more participation also of white youth. Then we are seeing in a long, long time, not at least since the 1960s, Working to change this world, I think, is the most satisfying work that you can do in this society. When I was um, working with women in South Africa post-apartheid, they said to me repeatedly, life always finds a way. Life always finds yeah. a way. And I, and I love that because I think that we are life. You know, yeah. in our struggle, we breathe life into new mm -hmm. ideas, new visions of what a society without injustice could look like. You write beautifully about the commons, you know, why commons? What is the commons? Because, you know, as a, as a child growing up in war, in a war-torn country, during, you know, the only way you survive was through community. And my mother always taught us community is immunity, you know, and it's ironic in the time of pandemic, we are told to isolate and separate. Yeah. To me, yeah. my immunity, my ability to survive is really dependent on that community. So perhaps you can talk about the commons. What what do we mean by creating a commons? Yeah, so you know, it it means many things. The broadest way to think of the commons is to think that this is a principle of organizing society, is a conception of the social organization. So you have capitalism which is built on the private which is built on, on fragmentation, which is built on exploitation. You know, the idea of the common is a very different principle of organizing society. You know, it's the idea of a society where you have cooperation, you don't have competition. You know, we're always talking about compete, America first, also the idea that you compete, you have to be the first, and you don't care, of course, what happens to the others that presumably are left behind. So the idea of cooperation the idea of sharing the wealth, you know, rather than exploiting, exploiting other people, but actually having access to the wealth that, you know, is produced and also the natural wealth, you know, and collectively taking responsibility also for the environment and for each other. So that's the idea of the sharing, the idea of uh, basically creating 
forms of reproduction, you know, that are more collective, that are more social, that are not isolating us from each other. As, for example, you know, everybody has their little house, their nuclear family, and so on, which doesn't mean that we cannot have strong relation with other people. You know, but the way it is organized, this notion of the private, which is not private at all, because really our life in so many ways, you know, it's, it's uh, supervised, it's shaped, controlled, and determined, you know, by, by capital, by the state. But this idea of the private life, which, you know, separates us from other people. So the idea of the commons is, again, the idea of, of a different way of organizing society. And then also, you know, we can break it down, you know, into the everyday life. For example, you know, we, common is every kind of practice that brings people together, you know, and... Uh, and particularly practices that have to do, you know, with, uh, with the reproduction of life. You know, as you say, the community, the fact that, uh, you know, being able to rely on other people, being able not to face the system alone. Uh, and it's the only way, in fact, you know, to overcome the crisis that we are living. I've written a lot about my what I've seen, and uh, in, for instance, Latin America, where repeatedly, you know, in so many countries, you know, because of the crisis that people have gone through, the austerity problem, losing their land, and so on, the response has been either total defeat or actually uniting with other people and trying to create collective forms of reproduction, you know, like. The, the popular kitchen, the collective kitchen, the communal gardens, you know, taking over some public land and, 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 and sowing some things, you know. So that now, for instance, we have so many examples of urban farming. You know, people have lost the land. Instead of, uh, you know, uh, just accepting their defeat when they were forced to go to the city, well, they came together and took over some land build some houses, build some streets, made some gardens. You see that all over Latin America. And also you see it in the United States. You see it in Canada. So I think that that communal spirit, which has been historically so strong, you know, in America, and, you know, Galeano wrote, Eduardo Galeano, the great, you know, Uruguayan poet, and writer, you know, he wrote that the spirit of the commons is the strongest spirit, is the strongest principle of American culture, you know, and is the oldest and the strongest. And I think we have to recuperate it. You know, the indigenous community, I think one of the reasons, for instance, that in Latin America we see such powerful struggles, you know, is because there you still have a whole indigenous culture in which the life is organized on the principle of the common. And that idea that my life is connected to yours and that uh, I cannot think of my life and anything I do purely individually, you know, is something that really has been a strong support in the face of American imperialism, in the face of over and over so many crises, you know, military coup and etc. 
This is what has kept people going. This is what has kept people continuing to struggle. And this has been an inspiration. I, people have spoken, I, I heard several times people speaking of that we are witnessing an indigenization of the struggle. Indigenization of the struggle is another way of speaking of the commons. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you for everything that you do and for all the ways you have not only opened my eyes to a multitude of ways of embracing my own power, of embracing the struggles of women that came before me and that continue to struggle today. So thank you again. Oh, thanks to you, Sylvia. You're doing great work, believe me. And I, you know, thank you for your very, very generous words. You're a very generous person, and I really admire you. We've come to the end of our show, Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an internationally syndicated weekly program made available through campus and community stations and available out to the world at www.latinwavesmedia.com. Visit Latin Waves Media to hear previous shows to access resources, or support our efforts towards social change.